we are continuing our series of studies on the Holy Spirit. Let me just give you a, a, a little bit of an idea of where we're heading with this series on the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. Tonight, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be making a bridge uh, into the Holy Spirit's activity into the New Testament. We, we've talked in the last weeks, we talked about the theology of the Holy Spirit as the third person of the Trinity. We've talked about, uh, you know, the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. We talked about the Holy Spirit through symbolism. If you remember, we talked about flashcards uh, last week. We talked about that. And, and tonight we're, we're, go, we're making a bridge to the, to the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, particularly, but not exclusively in the book of Acts. We're going to spend to, uh, most of our time tonight talking about Acts chapter 2. And so we're going to be doing that. Ne next week I want to talk about uh, the Holy Spirit experientially, uh, particularly the verbs that surround people experiencing the Holy Spirit. There are multiple verbs. I don't know if you've ever noticed this or, or not, or if you recognize it as you read the scriptures, but some places in scripture use the word received. Some places it says filled. Some say it, some places it says baptized, some say poured upon. Well, I want to know what all those mean and how, how, to, how it affects that. I want to deal with some of the issues of phenomenology, the occasional uh, phenomena of the Holy Spirit, manifestations of the Holy Spirit. How, how do we think about that? What's the balanced and biblical view of the supernatural phenomena that accompany an outpouring of the Holy Spirit? And then Eventually, we're, I want to deal with the gifts of the Spirit, and I want, to, I want to take plenty of time with that when we come to it. Uh, I want to go slowly when we deal with gifts of the Spirit, and I want to talk about your ministry in the Holy Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit, uh, gifts of the Holy Spirit in the life uh, of the believer. You know, we, we have as, as Pentecostals, too often, frankly, we have relegated the gifts of the Spirit to uh, occasional outbursts in a worship service. But I want to know is what difference do the gifts of the Spirit make in an ordinary person's life, in a plumber's life, in a truck driver's life, in a school teacher's life? What difference do the gifts of the Spirit make in, in everyday ordinary lives? And so that, that's, that's one, one, what I want us to deal with coming up. But tonight, as I said, we're making a, the bridge from the Old Testament into the New Testament. So if you have your Bible, I want to begin with one of the verses with which we ended last week. Uh, so turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verse 21. We read this. This was toward the end of last week's study. We're going to do a little bit of review uh, from last week because it sets up uh, to what we're talking about. Because most of what we were talking about last week, a lot of it was symbolism that was in the Old Testament. So I want to talk, uh, it leads into what we're talking about tonight. So uh, John, chapter 20, verse 21 Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive. It's a command. It's not just be receptive, but receive the Holy Spirit. Now, there, there are those with, there, there are entire doctoral theses written on what John 20, 22 means. And um, this is where... We, we sort of ended last week uh, talking, but I want to talk a little bit more about it. Uh, what, what happened in that room, in that moment where, that John recorded there? Uh, and one, we, we, this is a little bit of review. One, one prevailing understanding of that passage is that the Holy Spirit was imparted to them right then, right there in that moment. Now, 
As I said last week, I don't subscribe to that. I, I, I'll tell you why. There, there doesn't seem to be any witness, any manifestation or reaction or response. He just says it and breathes on them, but nothing immediate changes, as far as I can tell in any way. And so we remember Jesus holds the office of prophet and priest and king. And so here I believe he is operating in the office of prophet. So, you know, you, you go back to the very first week. And how many of you were here on the very first week of our series of studies? The, 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 the grizzled veterans of the Bible study here. Um, but uh, if you'll remember, we talked about the Holy Spirit as the wind. Ruach HaKadosh. The, the holy wind. The holy breath. The, the Holy Spirit that brooded over the face of the waters. And then last week in the lesson on the flashcards, what, anybody remember what the symbols of the Holy Spirit were that we talked about last week? Very good. Boy, he just nailed it. Wind, water, fire, oil, and dove. And, uh, and, the, and the first one we talked about was wind. And, and if you remember, the same word is used in Hebrew for wind, breath, or spirit. And so, and that's also true for the Greek, by the way. Uh, the same Greek word is used for wind, breath, and spirit. In Hebrew, the word is ruach. In, pneuma, in Greek, the, the word is pneuma. So what I, what I believe is happening here is that Jesus is giving them a prophetic word, a, a, a prophetic picture. And he's saying, this is going to happen. And he says, when that happens, don't close off, receive. So, so this is the illustration I used last Wednesday. I'll use it again. Suppose I said to you, Pastor Jason's going to be at your house at 2 o'clock this afternoon, and, he, and he's going to knock on your door, and it'll sound like that. He's going to knock just like that. When he does, open the door and receive him. I, b- I believe that, in essence, is what Jesus is saying right here. He says, when you hear the wind blow, then receive the Holy Spirit. Now, this, this whole issue of a common outpouring of the Holy Spirit is, is terribly shocking to the Jewish uh, people. Joel chapter 2, if you'll remember, said this, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. And your young men shall see visions. <clears throat> Excuse me. Even on the <clears throat> male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my Spirit. So in other words, he's saying there's going to be a general outpouring of the Holy Spirit on, on everybody. And, and Now, here's the thing. Joel chapter 2 was known. It, it wasn't as if it was hidden from Old Testament Judaism. They knew it, but it was, it was like a clipping that was laying on the clipping room floor. They, they knew it, but, but everybody just kind of said, well, who knows what that means? You know, because it was, to them, it was such a bizarre idea that, that everything would be turned topside down. Old men don't dream dreams. We have memories. You know, old men remember stuff. We don't dream things about the future. Young people don't have words of prophecy. Young people listen to prophets. Prophets should be old gray beards. He, he says that when the Holy Spirit comes, he'll turn everything upside down. And young people will have the authority of prophets. And, and old people will dream dreams and of, of a future yet unrealized. And he says... Not only that, he said, not only that, I will even pour out my Holy Spirit on women. Ooh. You know, because now that's not shocking to us as 21st century 
Protestants, but you have to hear it as, as, an, eight, as an 850 B.C. Jew. You have to remember they're, they're sitting in synagogues where men and women don't even sit together. In fact, there were some sitting synagogues where women weren't even allowed on the main floor. They sat in the balcony. Uh, and then not only that, he goes further and says, even your servants and your household will receive the Holy Spirit, who, by the way, may or may not be even have not been may, may or may not have even been Jews. So, so there it was, Joel chapter two. Everybody knew it, but it didn't make any sense to them. So Jesus is now reaching back to Joel chapter two, and he and he says. When that happens, receive. Receive the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist put it this way. He, he said, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and, and what? Fire. fire. Yet another symbol of the, of the, of the Holy Spirit, and, uh, the baptism of fire. And as I said last week, I'm just sort of bringing you up to date to lead into what we're going to be talking about. What's the concept of fire baptism? The concept of fire baptism is sanctification or purity. So, so John the Baptist says when Messiah comes, he's going to bring a purifying fire that will burn through you. They'll burn out all the bugs and the parasites that were in the bush before the fire engulf that burning, uh, that burning bush. It'll all be gone. The purifying fire of the Holy Spirit. So... Here's the thing, all of these symbols and concepts that we have talked about, especially these uh, that we've talked about tonight, are all pointing to a future moment. It's all talking about a moment when the Holy Spirit will be poured out. Now, what did that moment look like? Turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. There, there can't be a more familiar passage of Scripture in the entire world of Pentecost than Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 beginning in verse 1 says this. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. When you hear that. Jesus said, receive. I think he was pointing them to this moment. He said, it says, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues of fire. Uh, I, I, I baptize, John said, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than, mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? Now look at verse 8. And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Now I'm going to pause there for a minute. I want to show you something if you'll just stay with me. The, the more common understanding 
of what happened in that moment when people began to speak on the day of Pentecost was that they were speaking in all these languages, the 13 languages, Medes, uh, Elamite, uh, Mesopotamian, Cretan, all these different languages. They're all listed there. You can read the different groups of people that were gathered in Jerusalem. And the more common understanding of what happened here is that these people were speaking in these languages. However, I want you to see that is not necessarily what it says. And I'm not saying it didn't happen that way. It may well have happened that way. Uh, but I'm saying if we only go by the exact word of Scripture, that's not what it says. It says, how is it that we hear each in our own native language? Now, let me just let me just show you something. Let, let's take the people here. Uh, we're we're going to take. Uh, uh, let, let's just take everybody to the right of Renee, from, from Jordan and Miss Nett and everybody over here. You, you, I want, here's what I want you to do, which is most of the people here. I, I'm, in just a moment, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to count to three. And, and when I ask you to do this, what I, what I want you to do is I want you just to begin talking, not shouting or anything like that, but I just want you to begin to tell me everything that you have done since you woke up this morning, okay? Now, so, so just talk, just say it right out loud, everybody talking, not shouting, but just start telling me what you've done since you woke up this morning, okay? So everybody look right up here, look at me and start talking and tell me what you've done since you woke up. Ready? One, two, three, go. Okay, a little louder. Oh, okay, go ahead. Keep talking. Keep going a little bit longer, a little bit louder. All right, that's good. That's good. Now, now I'm going to ask. I'm going to ask Chuck. Um, what did Linda say? He hasn't got the foggiest idea. That's exactly right. And I mean, think about. It. I mean, they're they're not maybe thirty feet apart at the most. I mean, he could hear her if she was talking. She was speaking English. He speaks English, and, and, but he can't hear a word that she's saying. What, what did it sound like to, to you all? It was just a murmur of noise, right? What it says here is, that, is how is it that we hear each in our own native language? So I think what was happening was that they were all speaking in tongues. And we know in later other passages of Scripture that when a person speaks in tongues, he speaks in an, in an unknown language. It's, and it's, and, and uh, now there are instances that we know of where the Holy Spirit has, has spoken in an earthly language. But, but I think they were just speaking in tongues the way that we normally do. Uh, a, a tongue that's unknown to mankind that no one understands but God, according to what Paul says. Uh, and he, they're speaking in tongues. But then there's this guy that says, wow, I'm from Parthia. They're speaking Parthian. And then somebody else speaks up and says, no, that, that's not Parthian. I'm from Mesopotamia. That's my language. And somebody else speaks up and says, no, 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 that's not what they're saying at all. I'm hearing, uh, this is what I'm hearing. They're speaking my language. I think this is what's happening. So they were all hearing in their own language. So I believe what was happening in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit was that the supernatural touch was on both the speaker and the hearer. So the phenomenon of supernatural communication is happening at two different levels. There's no literal indication in the text that those people were speaking in all those languages. It's that the hearers 
were hearing them each in their own native language. They were all hearing their own native language. Now, if that's not your theology, I'm not trying to mess with your head. And if you disagree with me on that, that's okay, because this has nothing to do with whether or not you go to heaven or I go to heaven. Uh, but, but I'm just saying that that's what appears to be true if you just look at the words that are there on the page. Now, now I want you to skip down, if you will, to verse 13, Acts chapter 2. And, and this, is, this is one of those, I, I mentioned it last week, this is the verse that just kind of makes me laugh. Every time I read it, every time I think about it, it just makes me chuckle. It says, but others mocking said they're filled with new wine, which just means cheap wine, or they're filled with new wine, they're, they're just drunk, which always makes me laugh, because they already, they've already uh, made the observation that they're Galileans, that they're uneducated, there's no way they, can have, they know these languages, so somebody comes up with a theory, they're drunk, because we all know we, that people get smarter when they get drunk, that's just the way it works, right? It just makes me laugh that they would come up with that. Um, uh, but anyway, let's, let's keep reading. Verse 14, But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. As, and third hour of the day, as Jews reckon time, the third hour of the day would be nine o'clock in the morning. And good old practical Simon Peter there's no highfalutin theology here in this statement. He just says, look, it's nine o'clock in the morning. Think about how much new wine it would take to get 120 people so drunk that they can't even talk plain by nine o'clock in the morning. He said, there's not that much thunderbird in all Jerusalem. These people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But now here's the reach back to the Old Testament. Here's the bridge. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. Now he begins to quote, or, or more precisely, begins to paraphrase Joel chapter 2. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. That's that confusing passage 850 years earlier, that for 850 years the Jews says it's there, we know it's there, but we don't get it, we don't understand it. The 120 people in the upper room they were not rabbis. They were 120 people of both genders of untrained lay people. I will pour my spirit out on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy and I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So Peter spontaneously. Now, now we, we do not know. Maybe, maybe Jesus referenced this at some point in time, but it doesn't it seem that with, uh, of all the wonderful teachings that Jesus gave, if, if he gave Peter and the other disciples a prior upfront indication that on the day of Pentecost that they were going to see the realization, the fulfillment of Joel chapter 2, if Jesus taught that, don't you think that somebody would have recorded that? I, I, don't, I don't think he said that. I don't think he ever made the connection between the two himself. He just showed them a flashcard. A flashcard. 
Nevertheless, when the Holy Spirit falls on Peter, inside of him, this Jewish man, he remembers Joel chapter 2. He heard that when he was a boy in the synagogue where it was read, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And Jesus says, this happens. When this happens, then it's the Holy Spirit. And inside of Peter, by the illumination and revelation of the Holy Spirit, he says, I know what it is. I know what this is. Now, this is not some famous, well-educated rabbi. This is a fisherman. He says, I know what this is. This now is that. So he is, think about this. He is pointing backward to the prophetic statement of the coming of the Holy Spirit while he is standing in it experientially. I just want to say something. Wow. So since the Holy Spirit brooded over the face of the waters, the Holy Spirit that dwelt between the cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant and the tabernacle as fire and engulfed the shrubbery on the side of the mountain of God, the Holy Spirit that filled Isaiah and Jeremiah and anointed King David, the Holy Spirit that they had lived waiting on, seeing Him with exceptional grace on exceptional people, believing that someday in some way, in some way that nobody could understand that there would be a general outpouring of the Holy Spirit on all flesh. And then suddenly in a room on that particular day, Peter says, this is it. This is it. This is that which we've heard about for hundreds and hundreds of years. This is it. What a, what a stunning moment this is. It's massive. In my view, it is actually one of the fulcrums of the bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now, certainly Jesus is the fulcrum, but, but this moment vaults the church forward from just prophetic expectation into personal experience. This is that which was prophesied. It's not prophesied anymore because it's come to pass. This is, is that. Now, now, there are a few things about that outpouring of the Holy Spirit that I'd like for us to investigate a little bit. Uh, I want us to think about these things. First, what, what is happening here? What is happening at Pentecost? What's going on? Well, well, well first of all, what is happening corporately? Uh, something is coming into the earth that has never been before. The corporate body of Christ. But, but what did Jesus say? He said in John 12, 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it, di if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus say is saying, as long as I'm walking around in this body, I am localized. I'm right here. How many people can touch me? How many people can I heal? I can heal, even if I heal a thousand, maybe even 10,000 people. But what about the people in England uh, in, in the first century that are painting, painting themselves blue and worshiping rocks? What about them? What, what about the rest of the world? In fact, even if I touch everybody in Israel, I haven't touched most of the world. Jesus says, if this physical body, this seed will go into the ground, 
I will bring forth a harvest, and part of that harvest is the corporate body of Christ. So, so what happened at Pentecost is, first of all, the primary reality of Pentecost is that the Spirit-filled church was breathed into existence. The corporate body of Christ began in the upper room. The church began in the upper room. Now listen, I, I mean, we, we may call ourselves Pentecostals, but, but in this sense, understanding that the church is born on, on Pentecost, there, there is no such thing as a non-Pentecostal church. You know, a, a church without the Holy Spirit is a body without breath. And I'm not talking about Pentecostal culture. I'm not, I'm not talking about how we sing or worship or any of that. I'm just saying that the church was created at Pentecost. The further away from the upper room we get, we lose our, our, uh, we lose our sense of self-definition. Again, from, uh, apart from the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the upper room, the church, it may be a wonderful presence in the community. I mean, we can sponsor little league teams and have a great youth program and have child care and all kinds of things. But apart from the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the upper room, apart from the presence of the Holy Spirit in a church, it's nothing more than a glorified Kiwanis club. It is the Holy Spirit that came and created the body of Christ in the upper room that now continues to define the body of Christ. In other words, who we are in the Holy Spirit cannot be understood apart from experience of the Holy Spirit because that's who created the church. It's He, the Holy Spirit, that breathes life, new life into a person who gets saved. It's the Spirit that regenerates us when we get saved. Without the Spirit, there is no church. And that's why, in a sense, we can say all churches are Pentecostal. Doesn't mean that they all believe in speaking in tongues. That they all, it's not that all churches believe that, that those gifts are for today. But what I'm saying is, it, we, all, every true church of, of Jesus was born on the day of Pentecost. You know, many, many years ago, an evangelist was preaching revival services at a church in Georgia. And uh, Sunday morning, they had a great service. And Sunday afternoon, he went to the pastor's house to have lunch. And the pastor lived in a parsonage, kind of similar to here, where it was right next door to the church. And they went to the parsonage after church and had lunch. And they were just going to sit and they were going to watch a ball game. But then the pastor of the church said, you know what, I'm going to go out into the backyard and I'm going to burn some, some yard trash that I collected yesterday. And his, his wife spoke to him and said, I don't think that's a good idea. It's too windy. Well, he, he did it anyway. And how many of you know that that's an open invitation to unmitigated disaster when you ignore your wife? It's, it's just not a good idea. It was a blustery fall day. And he, he built the fire too big and the sparks went up into the dry leaves in the fall of this massive oak tree. And it set the tree on fire. All the leaves. So they called the fire department and they came and they, you know, used all their equipment and they cut a bunch of, you know, they had some, some larger equipment. They sliced off some limbs and all that kind of stuff and got, seemed to get everything under control. Everything was good and they left. Well, they had a Sunday night service later that day and it was kind of funny. The music department of the church for the worship time chose their songs very, very carefully that night because every hymn that they sang had something to do with fire 
And, and so, you know, they, they just mocked that poor pastor to scorn until suddenly as they were having this about three hymns into their worship time, their, their, their song service that they were doing, all of a sudden somebody yelled, the tree's on fire again. And so they all, they all run back outside and the same tree was fully engulfed in flames. It wasn't just the extremities this time. It wasn't the, the leaves and the outer branches, but the entire tree was, was ablaze. Uh, and every now and again, the, 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 it would just explode down in the trunk of that tree. It would sound like a bazooka went off or something, you know, boom, and sparks would go flying everywhere. And, and the fire department came back, and this time, they, this time they cut that old tree down. They chopped it up in pieces and sprayed it with some kind of foamy stuff. And the evangelist uh, talked to the young fireman who was running the whole show. And he, he said, he said let me ask you something. He said, what, what happened here? I thought you had it out. He said, well, we, we thought we had it out too. The evangelist said, well, well what happened? Some, some, did some mischievous Pentecostal come by and set it on fire again? What happened here? The fireman said, I'll, I'll tell you, I'll tell you what happened. We thought that the fire was confined to the extremities. But we did not know the fire had gotten down into the heart of that tree. There, we don't know the exact recipe of time and wood and sap and oxygen until it burst into flame. But then the flame came to the outside. And, it, and the fireman looked at the evangelist and he said, this is not a new flame. This is the same fire from earlier today. It's just that for a season of time, the fire disappeared on the outside. And the evangelist looked at him, that fireman and he said, son... That's the best sermon on the Holy Spirit I've ever heard in my life. And the fireman just looked at him and like stared at him blankly. He didn't know what in the world he's talking about. Listen, when the Holy Spirit inhabited, filled, defined, and empowered the church on the day of Pentecost, for the next 2,000 years, there, there may be seasons where the fire seems to disappear from the extremities. Through persecution, someone... Somebody lops off a few branches. Some of the, some of the leaves seem to lose the flame, but it's, but it's down in the heart of the tree. Then, then there come these seasons, like with Martin Luther or John Wesley or the holiness movement of the, of the late 1800s or Azusa Street with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in Los Angeles. All of these things, these are eruptions, right? However, it's not a new Holy Spirit. It's the same fire. It's the same fire. It's, the 21st century did not invent the Holy Spirit. The Pentecostal community, you know, the Church of God, the Assemblies of God, the Church of God in Christ, and all the rest of the Pentecostal community, we did not invent the Holy Spirit. It, it's not a new Holy Spirit. It's the same Holy Spirit that came in the upper room that, that has never departed from the heart of the church. There may be long seasons when for whatever reason, whether it's for, through backsliding or confusion, that he's not visible on the outside, but it's the same Holy Spirit that burns in the heart of the church. Now, the second thing that happened at Pentecost, the first thing is that the church was created. The second thing is that the church was birthed into the arena of supernatural ministry. From the beginning, 
the, the empowered grace of God was upon that church. That church was birthed in power. Thousands of people converted in response to the first Pentecostal sermon. 5,000 men. And remember, back in those days in the first century, Jews didn't even count women and children. 5,000 families converted in response to the first message that was empowered by the Holy Spirit. And, and who preached it? Peter. Peter, don't you see? That's all wrong. You see that? I mean, you tell me the truth. If you were Jesus, would you choose Peter to pre preach on the day of Pentecost? No, not me. I'm going to be honest with you. I'd be like, listen, Peter, 50 days ago, you, you denied me with a curse. So you sit over there in the corner and shut up. John gets to preach today. That'd be me. But, but why Peter? Specifically, why? Certainly, there, you know, there's the primary choice of Peter as sort of the executive leader of the, of the early church. But beyond that, why Peter? I, I think it was because God wanted to prove in that moment that he will take un, unlikely instruments and by the indwelling empowerment of the Holy Spirit, they will become completely different. Because this is not Peter, this Peter here on the day of Pentecost, this is not the same cowardly little guy from, from the, the day that Jesus was crucified. Never heard of Jesus. Nope, never heard of him. Blankety blank, I told you, I never heard of him. And now in this message, he stands up in public and he says, this same Jesus whom you crucified, God has raised him up. And you just want to say, whoa, where did that come from? It came from the power of the Holy Spirit that changes us, empowers us. So, so the Holy Spirit is a spirit of power. The, the church is created in an atmosphere of supernatural power, but the Holy Spirit is not only, not only was the church born in that, but the Holy Spirit is the empowering agent of individuals within the church. The, the Holy Spirit inside the church cannot be comprehended apart from the issue of power. Luke eleven thirteen 13 says, If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? That, those last words is sh are shocking. To those who ask Him. That's a shocking thing for Jesus to say to those who ask Him. Anybody? Like, what about women? Ooh. Right? Well, young people? Children? To those who ask Him. He doesn't say to men who ask him. He doesn't say to rabbis who ask him. He doesn't say to prophets who ask him. A general and empowering outpouring of the Holy Spirit is in the experiential context of supernatural grace. That is the church. As God ordained it. As God meant for it to be. Listen, a powerless, compromised backslidden and impotent church is a monstrosity. What God intended was for there to be supernatural power, an upper room experience, an upper room experience. The church was created in the context of that upper room experience. And when the church backs away from that fire, it loses to a certain extent its own reality. 
That's where we we were created as a church, and that is that it is for that which we are created today. God doesn't want His children to be impotent in the face of the adversarial culture in which we live, and we live in an adversarial culture. It's getting more and more adversarial. And I believe that it's going to get worse and worse because I believe there's going to be a greater division between light and dark. And, and that's not all bad, by the way, because what it does is it, it eliminates those places that we thought were gray areas where we thought we could kind of just play it down the middle and, and blend into the background and not make a difference and not have anybody notice this. Uh, that, that's going to go away. But, but in the middle of this adversarial culture where everybody is turning increasingly against the church and against truth and against God and against Christianity. As they're doing that, God does not want his children to be walking through this life and in this culture completely impotent and powerless in the face of that culture. He expects us to walk in power. Now, let me just conclude with this. Why... On the day of Pentecost. Why, why did this happen? Why on the day of Pentecost? You know, I do not believe for one minute that the disciples woke up on the day of Pentecost and said, Ooh, man, Ooh, this is it. Day of Pentecost. Acts chapter 2. Here we go. I, I don't believe that for a minute. You know, at five minutes to nine, they were not saying, Oh, man, five minutes, five minutes. Everybody get ready. No, because... The, the Jewish people had celebrated Passover for centuries. It had been there for centuries. And, and the Passover is a, is a celebration that takes place after Passover, but Pentecost, I should say. I think I said Passover. I meant Pentecost. Pentecost has been there for centuries. Pentecost is a celebration of harvest. It's, it's, it was a sign to the Jewish nation that harvest was about to begin. And it was a joyful celebration of the harvest that was just beginning. And it was also a statement of faith that God would, uh, would grant a plentiful harvest. Therefore, therefore when, when, when the Holy Spirit is poured out upon them, when the Holy Spirit came upon them and filled them in the context of Pentecost, God is re re excuse me, reiterating the fulfillment of a Jewish feast that's been celebrated for generations. It's no accident that it happened on the day of Pentecost. We didn't invent the word Pentecost or the idea of Pentecost is not a Christian word. It's a Jewish uh, feast. Everybody in the other upper room was a Jew. Everybody in the upper room was a Jew. We, we have to get this in our head. God is pouring out the Holy Spirit that brooded over the face of the waters of creation that, that was prophesied by a Jewish prophet, a prophet in an upper room in the capital of Israel on 120 Jews on the day of Pentecost, and there's nothing more Jewish than that. It means then that because it's on the day of Pentecost and it's the fulfillment of this feast that has been celebrated, this feast of, of, of harvest, it means then that this is the beginning, the launching pad of the worldwide harvest. Medes, Elamites, Parthians, Mesopotamians, Cretans, Romans, 
Greeks and all the ones that are listed, but it goes well beyond, and we can add to that Americans, English, German, Chinese, Korean, and you could go on and on and on. And you read these these people there, the Romans, the Greeks, the Elamites, and, and they're all saying on the day of Pentecost, the church is speaking to me. The church is speaking to me. The church is speaking to me. God said, I'm beginning here in this room with 120 people, a, a, a worldwide harvest, and that harvest will not end until I return. Here's, here's the point, and we're about to close. There is no way to understand Pentecost apart from harvest. And when we talk about harvest, it's very clear what we're talking about. We're talking about the harvest of souls. This is what Jesus said. He said that unless the seed is buried in the ground, then it stands alone. But if it's buried, if it dies, then it brings forth much, brings forth much fruit. It brings forth a harvest. The harvest is, the, is the, the church. It's the people of the world coming to know Christ. That's what you cannot understand Pentecost outside of the mission of God to redeem mankind. It's the empowerment and the kickoff of that whole harvest. Now, I'll close with this. Just one, one little thought. And here it is. I, you know, I hear some Pentecostal Christians and they say things like, well, you know, we're, we're, just, we're just not that into soul winning. We, we, we're about worship. We, we like celebration. We, we love uh, anointed preaching. By anointed, what they mean is something that stirs my emotion and it has really nothing to do with whether the Spirit of God was there or not. That's, I'm sorry to say that's often what it, what it boils down to. We're, but we're just not that into soul winning. I want to say this to you. A Pentecost, apart from soul winning, is completely incomprehensible to the God who set them both up. It is a harvest celebration. Pentecost and the infilling of the Holy Spirit, baptism of the Holy Spirit, is not about making you feel good. Now, I'll be the first to tell you, when the Spirit is moving, I do feel good. There's, I do feel something. There's something in there. I feel strengthened and encouraged and refreshed and all those sort of things, but that's, it's not about me. It does not terminate on me. The whole point of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is that it, it, it kicks us into the harvest. It's about empowerment for fulfilling the mission of God to reach this world, to redeem a fallen race of humankind. That's what this is about. It is a harvest celebration. Amen? Let's, let's pray together. Father, as we come into your presence, we thank you for the power of your spirit. And God, we, we, we understand, we see this biblically, that the power of your spirit is not about empowering us to feel strong or to feel significant or making anything big about us at all. 
but it is about magnifying Jesus and making him known and bringing people to Christ. It's about an empowerment for the mission. You said it yourself, Jesus, and as it's recorded in Acts 1.8, when you said you shall re receive power after the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses. And you, and you want us to be your witness to the entire world. But it's your spirit that empowers that. So God, I pray that, that, that you would refresh that in our hearts and in our lives, those that have been baptized in the Holy Spirit, that you would refresh that, it would become new, it would become powerful. And God, that you would use that to stir in us a passion for people who are lost. And God, for those that, that are seeking the baptism of the Holy Spirit, I pray, Jesus, that they would look to you and say, God, I want to be more effective. I want more of Jesus. I want to walk with you. I want to know you more intimately and that you would begin to hear their cry as they ask because you said you would give the Spirit to those who ask. And God, as they ask, I pray you would pour your Spirit on, on them, whether it's lying in their bed at night, whether it's kneeling at an altar at a church, whether it's sitting in a car in a driveway. It makes no difference. God, I just pray that you would fill them, you would baptize them. And God, that as you do, that, that it would be about more than just the initial physical evidence of speaking in tongues, but God, that it would be about the spiritual evidence of effectiveness in our witness and in bringing people to Jesus. And I pray, God, that you would let that happen and, and, and stir that hunger and that passion up in us. In the strong name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.